Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? I am great. How are you doing? Good, good. So we have um, some good articles, some interesting articles today. Um, I'm going to review a couple that were published in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Abstract series that is typically published every October. And these are the abstracts that are presented at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine meeting every year. So they were just presented at the Blackburn UK meeting that just happened a couple weeks ago. And then you have something else that's interesting. Um, So I think I'll start with the article, uh, which is actually, so these are just abstracts. So we don't have a lot of details because the abstracts are limited in terms of the number of words that can be submitted. Um, But I think we'll get the gist of their work anyway, and we can talk about it. Awesome. So the first article is entitled Disparities in Donor Human Milk Supplementation Among Well Newborns. And the authors for this, uh, this was a platform presentation, were Dr. Laura Kerr, Nicole Knighty, Jessica Marks, Lorraine Firmino, and others. And this came from the University of California, Davis, Department of Pediatrics. So this was a study that sought to see whether donor human milk was being used equitably on the well infant floor. And this is a topic that Dr. Kerr has been been a champion of for the last couple of years. This was actually a retrospective cohort study, which means that they looked back at the medical records of 653 dyads who were admitted to one particular academic medical center in the Midwest in 2014. And they included dyads who were, who were definitely breastfeeding, and they all received supplementation, either formula or donor milk. And they extracted the demographic data from the records as well, like their race and ethnicity. They found that among the 653 dyads, 361 were being supplemented with formula and 292 were supplemented with donor milk. The non-white mothers were less likely to use donor milk compared to formula. And there was a pretty amazing disparity with Hispanic mothers because Hispanic mothers were 80% less likely to use donor milk compared to non-Hispanic whites. Um, They also found that non-Hispanic blacks and Asians were also less likely to use donor milk compared to the non-Hispanic whites. And the non-English speaking mothers were also less likely to use donor milk than English speakers. Um, Another uh, finding was that dyads with public insurance were less likely to receive donor milk than those with private insurance. So their conclusion was that if we're going to close health inequity in maternal child health, that this is an area that needs some focus to try to understand. And again, because it was an abstract, we don't really have um, their discussion Um, and some ideas as to why this was happening. And it was just one academic medical center. So, you know, this may not be true in other centers as well, but obviously it did happen. So 
I thought this was interesting. Um, and I did, so in the clinical question of the week blog through the, through IABLE, um, I, I did, I wrote about a study recently that was a research study performed uh, among hospitals that are using donor human milk on the floor. And when I say on the floor, I mean not for the NICU, but for the well babies who need supplementation. So they, they, they um, did a study among um, like 17 hospitals in the Northeast who were using donor human milk on the floor. And um, they found that 100% of those hospitals were asking for consent before giving that milk. And then I actually was in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is a small town of about 100,000 people in the south of New, Mexi of New Mexico. And um, I was at one of their two hospitals, and they are also using donor human milk on the floor as well. And they also said that they are using, um, that they are asking consent uh, from everyone to use it. So then I was wondering, well, maybe this has to do with the, this disparity may have to do with just that intimidation of having to sign something that, because when you have to sign something, it almost feels like it's not standard of care. And if you have, if you're surrounded by like healthcare providers who don't look like you, who are asking you to design something, I wonder if that is a barrier. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. And I think, you know, there have been some previous studies that talked about the differences in the um, number of babies of different ethnicities that are receiving donor milk in NICUs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that has been um, reflective of the sort of concentration of different socioeconomic groups in at different centers that don't have as many resources. Right. Um, but right. this was all at one you know, one center. And so that question of consent, the other thing, um, you know, when you first started talking about it, it was like, oh, you know, when it comes to those NICU babies, a lot of times the moms are at other places. That's not true. You know, these are well babies. And so right. unless the mom is really ill and she's in another tower because she's intubated, which happens, you know, sometimes for us. Right. Those moms should be available. Um, but there's also the question of if they don't speak English, what is, you know, who is doing that consent and is there somebody who is available to do that? We're talking about using donor milk for our well babies at my institution. And there was a lot of discussion yesterday about does it have to be a doctor? Could it be a nurse practitioner at some places? A lactation consultant does this consent. Is it going to be prenatally? Is it going to be as soon as they're born or when the first supplement is needed? And, you know, that just the technicalities of it, we're getting super hung up in trying to figure out logistically how to make this work. Right. And so as soon as you ask for consent, then the logistics come in, right? And so then the people who don't speak English, where you have to have a tra a, an interpreter, then that then that will delay um, that opportunity for that family, and then that baby will be more likely to receive formula, um, or someone who is illiterate. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. the hospital in our system that is ahead of us on this, they are intending to have families that would like to have their supplements be donor milk sign a contract saying we intend to exclusively breastfeed we are going to pump we are blah 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 
um, which is, you know, more of this sort of pressure on the family that you're describing, whereas, you know, it's so easy for the nurses to give formula. Who's going to go to that extra effort when really, you know, there isn't a reason that it, it should be easier to get formula than to get human milk for a baby? Right, exactly. Well, I think part of the ease is that um, the donor human book is frozen, so then you have to thaw it. Um, so that's one extra step, and then they they don't want to waste it, um, and it's expensive. Um, so that might be you know one of the reasons why formula just seems like it is easier. Yeah, um, and there's logging it, and there's you know these are all the things that came up in the discussion with with my group was there's the expense and um, you know all sorts of things, but the the milk bank from Virginia at King's Daughters came to present to us. And there are other hospitals that have worked out a lot of these issues. And so at the start of each shift, you know, somebody is responsible for making sure that a bottle is in, you know, in the refrigerator to be thawed so that it's ready when a baby needs it. And they sort of tune that to how much they're using. You know, we have a huge hospital with 10,000 deliveries a year. So mm -hmm. there's always going to be somebody who's getting supplemented right, for hypoglycemia or other issues. Right. It just... It's a lot of work to do all of those those little steps to do right. basically what's quality improvement from my perspective. Right, right, right. But I my so um, I was interested in this whole idea of to consent or not to consent, and uh, the ethics about informed consent. So I uh, kind of searched around and I found an article that was actually just published um, in October two thousand nineteen called "To Consent or Not to Consent." That's the question. Ethical Issues of Informed Consent for the Use of Donor Human Milk in the NICU Setting. So this does not pertain to the Well Baby Unit, but it does uh, pertain to the NICU, where it's so considered standard of care that if you're going to consent, that would be the place where you shouldn't necessarily need to, because it is really considered standard of care to use donor human milk when the mother's own milk is not available or sufficient. And so this article... Um, was um, the main, the uh, the first two authors were um, Kelly McGlothen Bell and uh, Lisa Cleveland, and it was published in Advances in Neonatal Care, October two thousand nineteen. And according to this article, um, although the use of donor human milk in the NICU is widely accepted as superior to formula for so many reasons, um, there's not a universal mandate for informed consent. Um, when it's being used in the NICU, and they found they stated that sometimes NICUs will ask for consent right after birth, and others it's just bundled into the standard uh, NICU treatment consent. So for anything they're doing, they just sign the one consent, and then that's bundled in. So the authors actually have this chart about the pros and cons of asking for consent, and the pros included um, that when you ask for consent, you're you're providing education on a topic. Um, and then that by providing education, you're helping to create this sense of mutual trust between the family and healthcare provider. The family understands that the healthcare provider is making decisions in the best interest of the child, not based on finances or something else. And then, um, and then if the family, would, the family's response may help to give an insight to the healthcare providers in terms of like what the family sees as, um, you know, how how the type of healthcare the type of healthcare that would align with basically their values. 
Um, they also state that having a consent would reduce healthcare, would reduces healthcare liability, and it enables parents to take an active role in decision making for their infant's treatment. And you know, many of these young parents, you know, they have never really advocated for a family member or even for themselves for healthcare before, and so suddenly they need to realize that they're it, that they really do need to advocate, and that it's and that it's appropriate for them to voice their preferences and their concerns. Um, because they are the ones who are there, you know, I always tell my parents in my practice, you know, you're the number one advocate for your, for your child. Um, but, um, the, and so the cons that they brought up were that donor human milk is considered standard of care when mother's own milk is not available or sufficient. And that informed consent takes time and might delay provision of early feedings or expose the infant to formula unnecessarily. So then, so I was, I don't know, I think that, um, I think that we, I don't have obviously the answers as to, you know, why is this, why did this disparity happen in this center? You know, why did poor um, and uh, marginalized, you know, um, groups end up not getting uh, banked donor human milk? And why did the uh, non-Hispanic whites have higher amounts of donor human milk use? I don't know, but I do wonder if if consent plays a role. And this article didn't really... um, talk about that, you know, whether or not consent um, is contributing to that disparity. But I think it's something to think about. Um, and that if it, um, and that it can be standard, of, it, it can be standard of care. And I, I guess the one, my only thought is that I know that there are some groups who have religious objections to using donor human milk, and that would be something that would need to be identified. Just like, Je- just like Jehovah's Witnesses do not want blood, and they know ahead of time that this is something that may happen if they're hospitalized, so they usually will have those consents right off the bat saying, you know, I do not want blood or they want the bloodless, uh, you know, options in case they need it. But many families don't know that donor human milk is actually is standard of care in the NICU or may well be uh, standard of care in many nurseries around the country. Well, I have to say, I think that it's interesting to say that, like, when we think about consent versus assent, so like we give hepatitis B vaccine in you know the uh, hospital to newborns, and the nurses are allowed to you know, talk to the parents about it and get their permission to give it. Um, and the really, I think that one of a lot of the reasoning behind that has to do with what's considered the risk versus benefit. I mean, when you look at those NICU consents, there are a lot of things in there that are risks that are standard of care, mm-hmm. like intubating a baby who is, you know, now we're getting more into um, CPAP instead. But in the old days, it was like, your baby has got to be intubated if we're going to be able to resuscitate them and, you know, mm-hmm. help them to breathe. So it's standard of care, but it's that risk versus benefit that really causes us to need to go through that process. Um, and not just liability, so that parents will understand when you know their infant is ill, what's happening with them. Um, but there are other you know, things like there are places where families are consented to get formula supplementation. And when yes. I look at this issue around donor milk versus formula, and this is going to go into the article that I want to talk about in a minute, there are known risks of formula supplementation. And right. so we right. rarely present it in that light. And I think that 
what you said about an opportunity to provide education is really true. A lot of the neonatologists, you know, they go for what's called a prenatal consult for a mom who's, you know, sitting in the hospital on the high risk floor because she's at risk of preterm labor and they get the chance to talk about breast milk and say, this is something that we need you to do for your baby. It's a medicine that's going to help to protect them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they talk about we have donor milk if we need it, but also it's an opportunity to say, you know, this is something that we're there. We're going to have you pumping and providing milk for this little baby. They don't necessarily go into the risks of formula, but in some places they do. And you touched on some of the other thoughts I had about, you know, consenting for blood um, and, and how that plays with different, um, you know, people of different religious backgrounds. So, there are a lot of different things that go into this, and I think creating a way to communicate with families about the feeding choices that they're making is really the point. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And having and, it not be a barrier. Right. And maybe starting this conversation earlier, you know, if, if hospitals are doing this routinely, have it be part of the conversation. Um, have the OBs talk about it. Um, or anyone who's doing prenatal care, family doctors, um, nurse practitioners, whoever it is, talk about it. Um, WIC talk about it. Um, talk about child birth classes. So that everyone knows ahead of time that this is standard of care. I think that would probably be helpful too. And then it just normalizes breastfeeding too, which is, you know, which is like one other reason why like if families understand that, oh, the hospital even gives breast milk, donor breast milk if I don't have enough. They must see breastfeeding as really important. Um, I think it sends a strong message. Yeah, trying to get the OBs to talk about it is certainly something that we're struggling with. Um, And the other thing that really came up when we were having this discussion was there seems to be a real fear among some neonatologists and other doctors that if we're telling families that donor milk is important if they need you know, if they don't have enough of their own breast milk for their baby, that that's going to encourage people to go into the community and get milk that is not screened. And it's really an interesting discussion around this because I see patients every day who are coming to me for breastfeeding problems who have way too much milk. And they say, I say, well, you know, we can decrease your supply so you won't, you know, be so uncomfortable all the time. And they say, oh, but I'm feeding three babies. I'm helping these other people. I don't want to decrease my milk. And the other patients who are coming saying, I'm meeting a woman in the Target parking lot every week and I'm getting her milk. And, And so it's that same opportunity for education and saying, this is, you know, how this milk is screened and the risks of going other routes, which is just conversations we need to have. Part of the reason my hospital looked into this, um, you know, starting to bring donor milk in for the well babies is because patients are asking us for it. Right, right. And patients it's competitive. Have, yeah, it's a marketing thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. Patients who have had a double mastectomy before this pregnancy, but they want to give that baby milk. And so they're trying to arrange ahead of time. So that when they get here, we don't freak out because if we're not prepared, the hospital tends to say, no, no, you can't do X, Y, and Z. I think that that's a poor argument um, to say that women are going to go looking for other milk because the bottom line is that oftentimes women just need a little bridge, right? We're trying to prevent hypernatremia, um, dehydration, et cetera. We will never get to 100% 
exclusive mother's own milk, we will always have some degree of supplementation because we see so many women who have a delay in lactation. But that doesn't mean that they're going to need milk later. They just need bread. They just need a bridging for a short time. And then, like you said, absolutely. Yeah. Then it's an opportunity to talk about like, here's safe milk. This, you know, if you're going to use donor milk from the community, here's how you know if it's safe. Um, here's a good decision. So this it's an opportunity to educate, but not to give them formula because you're afraid of something. That is a poor decision. So I agree with you. I'm just telling you all of these different, (laughs) but what about this? But what about this? It was very tiring meeting. I I bet. I bet. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you just, I know, I know sometimes you just feel like you're the only one. Well, and I didn't feel like I was the only one. There's this NICU lactation consultant who got really feisty, really made my day. Oh, good. That's good. Some of the other people were like, you know, these are things that we really should be doing. It's just change is hard. And I think that um, in the medical profession, you know, particularly there, it's challenging. So that's why we keep looking at all these studies so we can sort of figure out which direction to go. The, the study that I'm going to talk about now is um, one that is titled Primary Prevention of Cow's Milk Sensitization and Food Allergy by Avoiding Supplementation with Cow's Milk Formula at Birth, a Randomized Clinical Trial. Um, so it ties right into this discussion that we're having, and it Absolutely. was published online in JAMA Pediatrics um, in October 2019. The authors were Dr. Hiroshima, Mezawa, Okuyama, and a few others. Mm-hmm. And um, I love that the the abstract starts off with importance. Cow's milk formula is used to supplement breastfeeding at birth without clear clinical evidence to support the practice. Mm, so nice. it goes to this, you know, the normative feeding for human babies is human milk. And they um, had an objective to determine whether avoiding supplementation with cow milk formula at birth can decrease the risk of sensitization to cow's milk protein or other clinical food allergy, including cow milk allergy overall. And then in subgroups that they had based on vitamin D levels, they looked further into that. So this, um, the, the design of this study, which was also under the ATOPI induced by breastfeeding or cow's milk formula trial or the ABC trial, because everything needs a cute name. Yes. <laughs> it was a randomized non-blinded clinical trial um, that was done between 2013 and 2018. And there were 312 infants included. Um, in the intervention group, or I should say immediately after birth, the newborns were randomized. And um, they were either given breastfeeding with amino acid-based elemental formula for the first three days of life at a minimum, or breastfeeding plus supplemented with cow's milk formula greater than or equal to five milliliters per day from the first day of life to five months of age. So essentially there may have been um, more of those formulas in addition to breastfeeding later on. But in the beginning, the babies that were in the group with cow milk formula were given at least five milliliters from day one. So they would be exposed. Mm -hmm. Um, The primary outcome was sensitization to cow's milk, um, IgE 
levels were done at the infant's second birthday. And then secondary outcomes were both immediate and anaphylactic types of food allergy, including cow milk allergy, diagnosed by oral food challenge. The results of this study showed a significant difference. The primary outcome of cow milk allergy was 16% in the breastfeeding and elemental formula group, which was lower than the 32% in the breastfed plus cow milk formula group. In addition, the prevalence of food allergy at the secondary birthday was significantly lower in the breastfed elemental formula group um, at around 2.6% versus 13% in the cow milk group. And anaphylactic reactions were 0.7 in the control group versus 8.6 in the intervention group. And so all of these suggest the sensitization of cow's milk and food allergy were primarily preventable by avoiding cow milk formula supplementation for the first three days of life. And I think that what you said is really relevant to what we're going to go into, which is a lot of times babies do need a bridge, but it's a very small volume. Right. So the authors undertook this because they noted that food allergy mediated by IgE um, is becoming more of a global concern. Its prevalence and severity are worsening. And um, to overcome this, prolonged exclusive breastfeeding has been um, recommended. However, there's been some controversy around this. And in 2010, a cohort study demonstrated that the frequency of IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy was lower in infants who began receiving regular cow milk formula within the first 14 days of life. And therefore, they recommended cow milk formula supplementation at birth. But this has been subsequently sort of shown not to be true in other studies. And the um, authors note that many years ago, babies were supplemented with sugar water when they, you know, moms did not have adequate volume. And so they hypothesized that part of the increase in allergies has to do with the increased early exposure to cow's milk formulas. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the that, that other study that did you say 2010, mm-hmm. um, that my impression of this whole thing is that it's that really small amount of cosmic protein that these babies are exposed to in the first three days and then no more. So they might get some cosmic protein sense, um, recognition through breast milk because we know that the, that the protein goes through breast milk, but that presentation is different. But then they don't get any more. Whereas if, you know, babies who are formula-fed they cosmic from the beginning, they have a lower risk of cosmic allergy because they just develop tolerance with ongoing, ongoing, ongoing um, exposure. So like I've always learned, you know, I've been practicing medicine for like 30 years now. And the the best way to have an allergic reaction is to take a medicine once and then take it again, like every couple of years, and then boom, you'll have a reaction to it as opposed to taking it every single day. Um, and so I, that's my impression. So I did a clinical question of the week on this um, back in July 2008, 2019. And um, there's a lot of evidence for this. This, this, this Japanese article, is ju- it just corroborates a lot of other information that's out there. 
And in fact, in 1935, this guy, Brett Ratner, a physician, he wrote an article back then in the Journal of the American Medical Association about ways to prevent cosmic allergy. And he said one of the recommendations to prevent milk allergy was to avoid isolated feedings of raw cow's milk to the breastfed infant during the neonatal period. And what he hypothesized, and this is, you know, before, you know, a lot of scientific, you know, a lot of science, um, he hypothesized that there's increased gut wall permeability that allows a passage of proteins early on. And then that, then they have that sensitization. Oh, stop. You're, you're stealing my thunder. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Okay. So I just thought, I just want to say that this guy was like, this Ahead guy of was time. like, definitely. Okay. So I'm he not going to even know anymore. about the yeah. microbiome. Right. Um, so, I mean, the authors also point out that in that 2010 study, there was not strict accounting of whether or not there were small volumes of cow's milk protein given in the control group. Um, and, and so, you know, it's difficult in a lot of these studies, the record keeping is not fantastic. In this one, it was. And so they also noted, I'm skipping ahead to the conclusions, that cesarean delivery is a well-known risk factor for food allergy, which may be explained, um, you know, by the evidence that infants born by cesarean acquire non-maternal vaginal bacteria from the hospital environment. Their microbiome is different from vaginally delivered babies. Um, and part of the thought is that that inflammation that is associated with having a difference in your gut microbiome, which is associated with early formula feeding, allows for greater um, inflammation in the gut and permeability, hmm. allows for this sensitization. So just a couple more quick things that were interesting about the way they did this study. The inclusion criteria, all the infants had to have risk for atopy, so they at least had to have one mother, father, or sibling with current or past atopic disease, asthma, eczema, food allergy. Um, and the babies whose mothers intended to exclusively breastfeed or exclusively formula feed were excluded. These had to be families where the, the moms were open to breastfeeding with supplementation. Mm -hmm. And so the way that they did it was after the birth, the, the babies were randomized and the mothers were asked to feed their offspring by breastfeeding and continue until this first blood test for the study at five months of age. They were allowed to add amino acid-based elemental formula when they believed that amounts of breastfeeding were not enough. This was subjective. And if the mother added more than 150 milliliters per day, which is five ounces, to breastfeeding for three consecutive days, exclusive elemental formula was switched to cow's milk formula after mm -hmm. the fourth day. And so that ensured that for at least the first three days of life, um, babies would only be given that elemental formula. Hmm. Then when they did the testing at five months of age, they looked at IgE levels um, of cow's milk protein, and um, they also looked at levels for egg, egg white, wheat, and mites. And I thought, just interestingly, because I didn't know this, that egg allergy is higher in Japan um, than most other countries, and they attribute that to the fact that Japanese like to eat their eggs raw. Oh, interesting. Like, huh. I've not yet gotten to go to Japan, but I'm hoping to someday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they also did a post hoc analysis in which the infants in the breastfeeding elemental formula group were further divided into the following three subgroups. One, 
Um, they continue the regimen at five months of age, you know, breastfeeding primarily. They obviously didn't get more than five ounces a day of formula or they would have been bumped into another group. Those who switched from elemental formula to cow milk on day 15 or after, and those who switched from elemental formula to cow milk on day 14 or before. And then the levels were compared among those groups. And I think that's really important because as we've talked about before in some of the other studies, you know, studies are analyzed along intention to treat um, guidelines. And so that means that, you know, when randomization is done, we may say you're in the breastfeeding group and this person is not. But if families, because, you know, they feed what they're going to feed, switch groups, sometimes the analysis can be confusing. Right. Uh, people are supposedly breastfeeding, but in reality, they're not. Um, I think that I certainly could go and talk about more of this for a while, but I think we've hit the, the most important parts, which is yeah. really the the babies that had very early exposure had a significantly increased risk of both cow milk protein allergy and other food allergies. And to me, that's really interesting, that question about the microbiome and the inflammation, and particularly in my clinical setting where we have so many babies who really only need very small volume, very short-term supplementation, having donor milk is, you know, I think, going to be an antidote to this. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that we need to seriously start changing our practice in the hospital because not only this study, but then there was also um, a meta-analysis in 2012 that found the same thing, that um, breastfed infants given cow's milk formula supplementation in the first few weeks of life had a 1.75 times risk of cow's milk allergy compared to the breastfed babies who were not supplemented. And then the, the article that I did for the clinical question of the week in July 2019 was a study that came out of Ireland, and they found the same thing, um, that um, babies who were supplemented with the cow's milk um, formula had higher risk of um, of um, cow's milk allergy later. So um, what's interesting is that in Japan, they chose the elemental formula and not the hydrolysate, which is, for those who need to know, maybe you want to talk about the difference between those? Yeah, I mean, they did talk about that a little bit in here. And essentially, you know, there are, there's sort of regular formula that's made with cow protein, and then there is a um, formula where it is extensively hydrolyzed and essentially the protein is chopped up into smaller pieces to try to decrease the likelihood um, that the protein will be recognized and cause allergy. And then that that is made, you know, with essentially two amino acid pairs that is um, does not have any uh, recognizable protein parts in it. Mm -hmm. um, and they talked a little bit about the the differences in those. Um, I thought it was interesting that when they were doing their conclusion, they said, if mothers don't have enough milk, it's ethically hard to keep an intervention of breastfeeding alone for 72 hours at birth, talking about essentially you have to give some kind of formula. So clearly, you know, they didn't consider this donor milk option right. when they were working on this study. But in their conclusions, they said, Avoiding cow milk formula is easily and immediately applicable to clinical practice throughout the world without incurring the cost and time of therapy, meaning immunotherapy to desensitize children mm -hmm. once they already have allergies. 
And I will say, because I have a nephew who has a history of anaphylaxis um, to cow's milk protein, that, you know, that 0% to 8% risk, like those incidents when he's been admitted to the ICU with anaphylaxis have been the most terrifying of, you know, that family's life. And any amount that we could decrease that, I think, is worthwhile. Yeah, plus the fear, you know, just the social issues, sitting at a different table, at the allergy table in the lunchroom, and um, having to worry about, like, not, not being able to eat the snacks that are brought to, to the classroom, and all those psychosocial yeah, issues are huge. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. I want to say, um, I, this is kind of tangential, but um, I had a patient who um, whose baby had particolitis, you know, the bloody mucousy stools, mm -hmm. which is different than, you know, that your basic IgE, you know, overwhelming allergic reaction. Um, but it was, you know, to cosmic protein. And um, so they, so uh, the baby was exclusively uh, formula fed. Um, and they developed it in a cow's milk formula. So then they tried the one of the hydrolysates, which was nutriamogen here in the United States, and the baby did fine on it. But they didn't like the they didn't like the um, the high fructose corn syrup in it. So they so they bought one of the European formulas, which is there's a couple there's hip and there's holly that I'm aware yeah. of. I and think they it's funny that it's called hip because it's becoming really hip with a lot of becoming, people over here. Yes, it is. And they don't use they don't use um, the high fructose corn syrup, which I think is a good idea not to use that based on what we know about sugars and breast milk. But um, but then the baby developed um, particolitis again, and so the protein was not as digest it was not as hydrolyzed. Um, so they had to go back to um, either they actually went to the amino acid formula because they they preferred that over the nutriamogen, but. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing to th about the hydrolysates too, is that they may not all be created equal. Well, and they, they smell and taste horrible. So I have a patient who is, you know, he became sensitized to cow's milk protein through the breast milk. And then as is not uncommon at some point, somebody told his mom, you know, well, you should stop breastfeeding and give just this other, you know, nutriamogen for a little while, and the baby would not eat. Yeah, and her milk it. supply went down during that period, and so then she was fighting to get it back, and it yeah. was just such a saga. Babies really don't like, they don't like nutriamogen. I mean, I, I can't say everyone, but yeah, that is definitely an issue. And that's an issue sometimes for even regular formula. I've heard that from many families, that they just feel like the babies much prefer breast milk. So that's kind of cool, <laughs> like voting with their... Voting with their really, feet, voting with their really teeth. Smart, with their, smart babies. With their lips, yeah. So, okay, well, that's good. Um, I just have one other uh, abstract that was in that uh, list of abstracts presented at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine meeting. And this article was entitled, Breastfeeding Interventions Are Not Associated with an Increased Risk of Infant Death Using Data to Refute Sensationalistic Claims in the Literature. And this is, uh, the authors of this were Melissa Bartik, Mary Ellen Boisford, and Barbara Phillip, Bobby Phillip, and they are all in Massachusetts. So as you probably know, this is in response to some, some difficult news and uh, media reports. Um, the authors sought to measure if breastfeeding initiatives were associated with an increase in breastfeeding rates and whether these breastfeeding initiatives increased 
the risk of uh, sudden unexpected infant deaths under a year of age. Um, so this was done in response to a few articles that were published recently, and then also some media sen um, sensationalism about the relationship between baby-friendly hospital initiative and the increased risk of sudden unexpected infant deaths due to increased skin-to-skin -skin rooming in. Um, and, the, and that increased sudden unexpected infant death is basically the SUPC, which is the, un the sudden unexpected perinatal collapse where there's you know been these documented babies who have uh, died suddenly um, in the hospital or who have um, had hypoxemia and have gone on to have something like cerebral palsy, uh, for example. So yeah, in like fact, I mentioned in that meeting I was in yesterday too, so I can't wait to hear this abstract. Oh, no. So in fact, uh, there was this an article that was published in the Journal of Peds, which is still in, in Journal of Pediatrics. It's currently in press. And it's entitled Outcomes from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention 2018 Breastfeeding Report Card Public Policy Implications. And this is by Dr. Bass, Dr. Gartley, and Dr. Kleinman. And I think they are also um, in Massachusetts. So that article, so I'll start with that article first um, about this um, sensationalism, is they claim that statewide breastfeeding initiation rates um, and they're talking about Massachusetts, well, they're talking about Massachusetts, but also looking around the country, um, that, that statewide breastfeeding initiation rates um, are associated with increased breastfeeding at 6 and 12 months. But that these rates, these increase in rates, are not associated with baby-friendly hospital initiative certification, and that the certification doesn't do anything really for these increased rates it has to do with all the another all the other initiatives that coalitions and state health departments do so they go on to state in this article that there are concerns that the baby friendly hospital initiative with a focus on skin to skin and rooming in which is what their particular pet peeves are um, is associated with that sudden unexpected perinatal collapse neonatal falls newborn dehydration and increase in jaundice so Stepping back again to the abstract that was in breastfeeding medicine, um, the authors w sought to refute this, um, this, these accusations. And wait, so, wait, first explain to me how ruminin increases jaundice. Um, I think it has more to do with falls because the baby ends up in the baby in the parent's bed. But um, the other, okay. so it's skin to skin rooming in, and basically the baby friendly hospital initiative policies, which is you know, telling people, just keep breastfeeding, just keep breastfeeding, yeah. you know, we're not oh, going to supplement. Okay. I yeah. Understand. So it's, I get it. yeah, but in particular, those two things um, in terms of the risk of death. So in um, Dr. Bartik uh, Phillips and uh, Boisford's article, um, they want to refute this. So they use data from the Massachusetts Breastfeeding Collaborative, the Department of Public Health, and data from the Center for Disease Control. And what they did is they tracked breastfeeding initiatives, breastfeeding rates, and the uh, rate of sudden unexpected infant death from 2006 to 2016. And they use the sudden unexpected infant death as that proxy for sudden unexpected perinatal collapse because, you know, it ends up being in sudden unexpected infant death if they die from it, right? So mm -hmm. the SUPC itself um, is, has been difficult to track because it does end up in that other category. So they found that um, the percent of births in breastfeeding facilities, um, BF, baby-friendly hospital initiative 
facilities grew from 3.4% in 2006 to 13.6% in 2013 in Massachusetts. The breastfeeding initiation rate in Massachusetts also increased from 77.5% to 89.2%. And then they were able to demonstrate that exclusive breastfeeding at three months grew from 37.6% to 46.9%. So breastfeeding initiation and exclusivity at three months increased. However, they found that the rate of sudden unexpected infant death um, under six days of age, which would you know, really clench that sudden unexpected perinatal collapse, during 2010 to 2016 decreased as compared to 2004 to 2009. And mm. there, was, um, there was also a huge decrease in sudden infant death um, SIDS rates um, which we know that breastfeeding is strongly associated with a decreased risk of sudden infant death. And, um, you know, there's a difference, obviously, between, for those who are listening, the difference between sudden infant death syndrome and sudden unexpected infant death. So the unexpected infant death oftentimes is described by, you know, all deaths, whether it's a rollover, a fall, you know, and um, what else? Um, association from other things like choking or whatever. Um those are unexpected. Um, but SIDS is this, we don't know what causes SIDS kind of category. And all these other things are ruled out like rollovers and um, dropping and things like that. Or like a arrhythmia that's found to be genetically in the family. Once the baby passes away, sometimes it'll be explained. Right. So anything that's, so the SIDS is basically anything that's not explained. And they found a marked decrease in SIDS rates from 0.55 cases per 1,000 live births in 2004 to 0.9 per 1,000 births in 2016. And what's interesting, if you look at all the cases of the sudden unexpected infant death under six days of age, from 2004 to 2016 in Massachusetts, we're talking about 22 babies. So you couldn't really even tell if there is an increase, right? If you have 22 babies, from 2004 to 2016, you know, it, it, um, it actually was found, they actually found that the rate decreased um, from 2010 to 2016. So in conclusion, they didn't notice any increase in sudden unexpected infant death rates with that rise in breastfeeding rates, and there was a drop in SIDS rates. So they state in a report that implies that breastfeeding interventions are associated with increased infant mortality may not be reporting accurate data. Interesting. Yeah. So there's more to the saga. So this is definitely, this is def, there's definitely a battle going on in the literature about baby-friendly hospital initiative and uh, particularly skin to skin. And we do know that we have to make sure that hospitals are aware of how to do skin to skin safely. And the American Academy of Pediatrics put out their statement in, I think it was 2016, on how to do safe skin to skin. And there actually is another um, abstract in this set of abstracts from the meeting um, by uh, Lori Feldman Winter and colleagues about um, coming up with like a train the trainer program in hospitals on how to keep babies safe. And it includes how to do safe skin to skin. So I thought that was kind of interesting, like having an actual safety program for babies and that part of that safety program is that skin to skin, the rooming in, the prevention of falls. I think that's kind of a cool way to like re 
look at BB Friendly Hospital Initiative, you know, just in another way. Say this, you know, here are ideals for for making sure that babies can be successful breastfeeding by the time of discharge. But then here's how to keep them safe too. And I thought that was really, I thought that was genius actually. I agree. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think that um, I don't have anything else today. Do you got anything? <laughs> Good luck with the weather and I'll talk yeah. to you next month. Sounds great. Okay. Take care, Karen. Talk to you Bye. later. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.